You know, when I was a kid experiencing Christmas in the home where I grew up, we always had a, a Christmas tree. And I, I loved having a Christmas tree. When I think back to my childhood memories of Christmas and I visualize whether in my house or in my grandparents' house where we often went on Christmas, in the background of those images, there's always a tree standing in the corner somewhere, always with Christmas lights on it. My family would tell you nowadays that I'm really not much of a decorator of any kind, even for the holidays, but my, my favorite decoration probably for any season is a Christmas tree. That's my favorite. And Christians have been using Christmas trees to celebrate the Christmas holiday for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. People have used Christmas trees to celebrate the holiday of the birth of Jesus. Long ago, before anybody ever put electric lights on trees, they would put candles on them. They put candles in the branches of the trees, and those candles would shine light. They would light up during the long, dark, cold winter nights. I have to tell you, though, I've always thought that was kind of a suspicious tradition, right? You, you take a tree and you cut it down. It begins to dry out. You turn it into perfect kindling, and then you put fire in its branches right? inside your house. <laughs> we... We still do it though, right? We bring trees in, we plug them into electrical outlets once they're all dried out, and I do this every year. But people have used Christmas trees to symbolize the celebration of Jesus' birth for a long, long time. And as I said earlier in our welcome to this service, I, I wanna take us together on a little bit of a journey this afternoon, a little bit of a journey of reflection and prayer and music, and make three different stops at three different trees each of which I think has something very, very important to tell us about the meaning of Christmas. But the first stop we make really has to be here. We have to start with the Christmas tree that has come for so many of us to symbolize our celebration of the birth of Jesus. You know, in the Bible, the Bible's stories of the birth of Jesus don't do anything at all to hide the very humble beginnings from which Jesus came. And in Jesus' day, children in general weren't very highly valued. This is a different emotional response to children than usually we have in our world right now. People didn't think very highly of children. They wondered if maybe the children would grow up and begin to produce value and produce something in the world for themselves and their families. Once they did, their value in people's eyes went up. But for the most part, people took kind of a, a wait and see approach to children. Let's even wait and see whether we're gonna get attached to this one or not, because you know they might not even make it. And sometimes, sadly, in ancient times, it would be decided for children that this one or that one would not make it. Usually a family would make that choice sometime in the earliest days of a child's life. In fact, the, there's an ancient philosopher, and those of you who might be history nerds, some of you may have heard of the ancient philosopher Plutarch. The ancient philosopher Plutarch said that until a child was eight days old, it was really more like a plant than a human being anyway. And I think about our children, I think they were very loud plants, but that's what they thought. Sometimes during those first days of a child's life, a family that didn't think they could handle any more children or want any more children would take the child outside of town, out to the village dung heap, outside the village, and they would leave their child there. They would abandon it in a process called exposure, and it would just be left there, exposed to the elements and waiting for nature to take its course. That was done sometimes by families who thought that they were just too poor to handle another child, or maybe the child wasn't healthy enough that they felt like they wanted to take care of it, or maybe it wasn't the gender that they were hoping for. Sometimes people would come along and they would rescue children from the dung heap, but even then, a lot of times, that was financially motivated. They were just gonna raise that child until it was old enough to be sold into slavery and hopefully they would make a profit. 
One of the things we know from history is that the, the, the word in ancient Hebrew and also in the Egyptian language, so in the area where Jesus was raised, the, the word for dung was kopor in both of those languages. And one of the most common names among slaves in the first century was kopros. It was child of the dung heap. Jesus himself was born to poor, unwed parents. And in other circumstances, he might have been left out there on the kopor. The Bible does absolutely nothing to hide the very humble beginnings from which Jesus came. His parents weren't planning on him. His world didn't want him. He was born in a barn, for goodness sake. You know, when I was growing up, I would go over to my grandparents' house sometimes and play, and I loved to go outside and play in their yard. And I was a kid, I'd go running out the door, and I'd leave the door standing wide open, summer, winter, it didn't matter what. And my grandmother would always yell at me. She's like, what's the matter with you? Close the door. Were you born in a barn? And it never once occurred to me to say, well, Grandma, Jesus was. <laughs> Not sure that would have helped my case a lot. But he was. This is the story of how God entered the world. You know I mean? If I were to ask you, or any of us were to ask other people, like, where do you see God moving in the world? Where do you see the hand of God at work in the world? I don't think a lot of people would tell a story like this. But this is the Christmas story in the Bible. This is a story of how God came to enter the world. And the child who was born this way grew up to say the most remarkable things about God. He came to bring the the goodness, the care, the good news of God to people that everybody else had left behind, abandoned, trampled, and forgotten about. He came to bring the goodness of God to people who themselves probably felt like they were unworthy of God. And one day Jesus was out and he was teaching about God to a whole bunch of people. And somebody brought children to Jesus. Now, everybody else around knew you weren't supposed to do that. Even the very first disciples of Jesus who were there with him on that day, who were trying to learn about God and life from Jesus, they were his disciples. Even they said, hey, let's send the kids away. Maybe Jesus can check on them later. They were encouraging Jesus to take a kind of wait and see approach to see if these kids would grow up to matter. And then someone as important as Jesus would invest in them. But in Jesus' eyes, everybody matters to God. And so Jesus, in that moment, very famously said, let the little children come to me. And the Bible says he put his hands on them. And I can just imagine Jesus standing there with his hands on the shoulders of some little girl, maybe right here. Maybe her name was Copra. I don't know. And he said that she was great in the kingdom of God. She was great in the eyes of God. In fact, he said to everybody else around that we ought to become more like her in order to enter the kingdom of God. There just wasn't anybody else saying things like that about God. But this is what you get with Jesus who was born in Bethlehem that day. And now Jesus has come also to bring the goodness and the presence and the care of God into all the parts of our lives that feel like they've been abandoned and trampled and left behind and nobody cares about. He comes to bring the goodness of God and the care and the presence of God into the parts of us that maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable even being in a worship gathering today. Jesus came to bring God into the parts of our lives, into the shame and the pain, the brokenness that we feel over the parts of our lives that seem in our own eyes to be our failures. He comes to bring God to us in our lost jobs and our financial strain. He comes to bring God right into our lives and our hurting marriages and our broken relationships. 
Jesus was born to bring God into our lives for all our wasted years and all our occasional tears. Jesus came to bring God into those parts of our lives where we feel shame and pain and failure. That's how he was born. And somehow we've come to idealize Christmas as this perfect time of year when people go out and buy just the perfect gift and they wrap it up so perfectly and they put it under a you know, a perfectly decorated Christmas tree, and then they gather together around a perfectly decorated table with other people who are faking perfect just for the sake of Christmas. And it's breaking all of our hearts. And I just think it's time for us to hear the real story of Christmas again. And maybe you need to hear the real story of Christmas this year more than most. Maybe because you've had some dung heap experiences in your life this year, like I have in mine. Maybe you've been exposed to some pain and some struggle and some heartache this year that you're trying not to show and you're trying not to feel. Maybe because you felt like you had to leave the real you, the way that you really feel and the way that you really think at home so that you could be brought here to this place today. But I wanna tell you that the real you belongs right here. That's what Christmas says. And whenever you see this first tree that we're talking about today, Whenever you see a Christmas tree, I I hope it will take your mind back to this story and remember that Jesus was born to bring God into these parts of our lives. I could even just imagine Jesus standing there with his hands on your shoulders or mine saying, let this child, just as they are, let this child come to me. Let this child come to me. I imagine that most of us have heard that expression, I was born for this. And maybe some of you have been lucky enough in life to find something and get to do what you were born to do. And I'm sure if that's the case, it's something you feel good at, gifted for, you find joy in doing it. I imagine it's probably something you feel very strongly about. Like, I was put on the earth for this. I was born for this. I think it's interesting that we can say almost the same thing using almost the opposite words. Right? Have you ever heard somebody say, I would die for that? I would die for something? I imagine if you would say that, that's probably something you also feel very, very strongly about. And I hope for all of us that you get to do in life what you were born to do. And I hope that you don't have to live your whole life without finding what it's something that you would die for. But I also don't think that those things ever came so close together as they did at the time when Jesus was born. Now, you know, when, when my kids were born, I remember how we wondered what they were born for. We kind of wondered what their lives would be like. Would they be more like my wife? Would they be more like me? We wondered if they would get her musical talent. We prayed they wouldn't get mine. We, we wondered what they were born for. But we didn't talk at all about them dying. And nobody talked to us about that either. It's just not usually how it's done when children are born. But they did talk about that when Jesus was born. When Jesus was eight days old, His parents, Joseph and Mary, took him to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate his life to the Lord, as was the custom in those days. And when they got there to the temple, they met an old man who was living in the temple. And his name was Simeon. And Simeon was a prophet. And it had been revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen with his own two eyes God's Messiah, God's anointed, appointed Savior, And then one day, in walks Joseph and Mary with this baby, and Simeon knows that it's him. Somehow he sees this is the one, and he begins to rejoice, and he says, God, now I can die in peace, 
I don't know if Simeon felt like he was born for this, but at this point, it's what he was living for. And he rejoiced, and he told Joseph and Mary that Jesus was going to be great, and that his name would be known among the nations. Which, it kind of strikes me, that's a lot like what a lot of parents of newborns think. They just want someone else to say it out loud, right? Like, my kid's amazing. (laughs) And Simeon was saying that. He was speaking the language of new parents. But then he changed directions quickly. He said to them that Jesus was a sign that was going to be spoken against. He was going to encounter great opposition. And then he turned directly to Mary in his last words. And he said to to dear sweet Mary, mother of one week, barely recovered from giving birth without so much as an epidural, Mary. And he says to her, a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's it. Those are Simeon's last recorded words before he apparently went off to die in peace. But that must have left Mary with some questions. I mean, if I were Mary, I'd be asking myself, well, a sword, why are you talking about a sword? The angel said glad tidings of great joy. What happened to that part? And then as she continued to think about it, I imagine that she must have wondered, what do you mean by two anyway? What do you mean a sword shall pierce my own soul too? Who else is going to get pierced around here? The answer would come, of course. The answer, which I suspect that Joseph and Mary also already suspected, is that Jesus would also be pierced. Is that Jesus was born to die. Right? Jesus was born for us, to live for us, to bring the, the presence and the goodness of God into the brokenness of our lives. But he would also die for us. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. It's the same thing that another prophet had already said hundreds of years earlier. In this case, it was a prophet named Isaiah. And looking forward across the centuries to the Savior that God would one day send, Isaiah said about that coming Savior, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our sins. You know, part of the truth of life is that we all get copored from time to time. We all experience getting trampled and hurt and broken in this life. And Jesus came to bring God to us in those very real experiences. The other part of the truth of life is that we all eventually, inevitably, sling the copor on somebody else. None of us have clean hands. You know, I like to watch and read crime dramas. It's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine, pardon the pun. But in these crime dramas, there's always a victim, and there's always a perpetrator, a perp as the cops in the crime dramas like to say. We are all victims of the sin and the culpor in this world. We are also all perps. We're perpetrators of sin whenever we turn a blind eye toward those who are in need. We're perpetrators of sin when we let the bitterness in our hearts prevent the flow of forgiveness in our relationships. We're perpetrators when we allow our greed to run wild, when we make relationship choices that hurt instead of help other people. Whenever we fail to be the human beings that God created us to be, to love God and to love one another as ourselves. I mean, if we're going to be real this Christmas, then let's be real. This is the truth about us. And perps deserve what they get. They deserve to pay. When perpetrators do what perpetrators do, somebody's got to pay for that. And this is where Jesus says, that's me. I got this. I was born for this. I was born to die for you. Jesus, by his death, paid the penalty for the sins that we perpetrate. He paid the penalty 
for the sin in your life and he paid the penalty for the sin in my life. By Jesus' price-paying death, he brings and gives to all of us that most precious Christmas gift of all, the gift of real grace, the gift of grace for us. And honestly, we don't experience grace a lot in our world. We're not used to the depth of real grace. I mean, people cut us slack from time to time, but then we owe them one, right? We pay them back. That's not grace. We don't even experience a lot of grace around Christmas time. Even jolly old Santa demands that you be good for goodness sake, right? But Jesus came to bring grace and forgiveness and mercy into our lives. There's a, there's a Christmas tree. The Christmas tree says that Jesus didn't just come for the beautiful people, for the people who've got it all together, whose lives are unhurt and unwounded and unscathed, as if there really were any such people in the first place. But there's another tree. There's another kind of Christmas tree that says that Jesus didn't just come for the good people. He didn't just come for the righteous people who've done all the right things and made all the right choices in their life. There's a tree of grace that says that Jesus came for perps like you and me. He came to pay our debt. He came to make us clean. He came to give us life now and forever. By his amazing grace, we all, you and me, just as we are, are welcome in God's family right now, here in the present, in this life. And by his amazing grace, we are welcome in God's family, in God's future for all eternity in the next life. This is the gift of God's grace to us. And it's all because there's another tree. It's all because of another Christmas tree that nobody saw coming. Well, nobody maybe but old Simeon. Nobody could see it coming, but everybody needed it. And I want to invite you in the minutes that follow in this service to see it, to reflect on it, to, to bring your life to Jesus as he has given us life, to bring your life to him and receive instead the life that he gives you, to let your heart know the truth about itself, to know the truth about yourself, and to know that God loves each of us anyway, that his love is for you, not because you deserved it, not because I deserved it, but even and especially when we didn't. At Christmas, we receive the grace of God. And I like that Christmas comes almost at the end of the year. It's like closing a chapter on what used to be in our lives, allowing God to put our past behind us. But Christmas also comes as we are getting ready to start a new year. And I like that even better. Because Christmas is also about new beginnings. In fact, Christmas, you might say, is like the beginning of God's new beginning. And there's one more tree for this in the Bible. And it comes way at the end of the whole Bible story, but it starts way at the beginning of the whole Bible story. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, there's a story about the Garden of Eden. And it's a story about how God meant for the world to be in the first place. A world where there was no sin and no anger and no sadness, no violence, no hatred, no suffering, no sickness, no death, no death only life in God's world. And in the story, it says that the tree of life was growing in the middle of the garden of God. And then way at the end of the Bible, in the last chapters of the Bible, it says almost exactly the same thing. It says there that God is making a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, a new paradise for his creation. And there, there will be no more mourning or crying or dying or pain. No more sin, no more wrong, no injustice, no more death. 
No more death, only life. And Revelation chapter 22 says the tree of life will be growing in the middle of God's world again. And in its imagery, it says that the leaves of the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations, for the healing of God's world, for the healing of all that has been broken. And if you go out after this service and you're out in our church commons, you can actually look up at the mural that's around our skylight. And you'll see in that mural a, a portrayal, a painting of the, of the tree of life growing in the Garden of Eden. And you'll see a, a depiction of the history of the world that looks forward to the tree of life blossoming and growing in the Garden of God again. Even a portrayal of the lion and the lamb lying down together as a representation of God's promise of peace, and wholeness, and harmony in his world again. How does that happen? How, how do we get from there to there? How do we get through the here that we live in? How does all that has been so broken in our lives and our world get so perfectly healed again? The answer is that it's healed by the grace and the power of the one who was born in Bethlehem on the first Christmas day. Christmas is the beginning of God's new beginning. Partly that means that Christmas can be a new beginning for you and me. And maybe where you are in your life, you're ready for this Christmas to be a new beginning for you, to be like a fresh start in God's grace. Maybe you're ready for a, a fresh experience of God's presence and for his healing for your soul. Maybe you're ready for a new commitment to life in God's way, to say yes to God's invitation to life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, to life in his way. Maybe Christmas 2013 is a time for a new beginning in your life. And if that's you, or, or if it's not, I also want to tell you that the new beginning that God has planned at Christmas is even bigger than your individual life and even bigger than my individual life, bigger than we imagined. Christmas is the beginning of the new beginning for God's world. And I believe that Christmas includes a powerful call, an inspiring call for each of us to participate with God in something that's so much bigger than ourselves. It's an invitation to join in the work of God healing what has gone wrong in his world. I, I think that there is in each and every one of us gifts and abilities and passions that are just waiting to be unleashed in the service of something as grand as God designed them for, to participate in his work in the world. And even in this room alone, there is all the creativity and energy and care and passion and power for God to use to bring growth to the leaves of the tree of life that he's planting in this part of his world right now. And we together are just one worship service in one church and God is calling out to his people all across the city at Christmas time, all around the globe. He's calling at Christmas and saying, I came for you wherever you were. From the penthouse to the copor pile, I came for you. I came to give you grace like you never imagined. And I have come to make all things new. And here this Christmas, I just want to invite you to respond to God's invitation in your life. So whatever you sense that God is stirring in your soul this Christmas, I invite you not to miss your moment here, but to experience the grace that God has for you. To find the life that is truly life in Jesus Christ and to join in God's work of creating new in you and in our world. 
This is just the beginning. Christmas is just the beginning. And I want to pray together for what God has planted in each of us. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for Christmas, for all that it means for us right where we are. We thank you for your grace in our lives, for being able to love us, forgive us, and show us mercy, not when we've got our stuff together, but just right where we are. And God, I pray that you would send your spirit, your own presence here into this room, here into our lives, here into this community, here into our families and our homes. And God, I pray that you would do your work of making all things new, that you would make our hearts new, that we would learn to see ourselves as you see us in truth and grace and mercy. And God, I pray that you would do your healing work in our souls, in our homes, in our families, our communities, in our world. You are the God who makes all things new. And here on this day, we give our lives to you and pray that you would do in us what you do so well. We love you. We live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.